Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 224. That was just to throw off Josh, because he's going to listen to that and be like, what is up with the audio? <laughs> Thanks for everything you do, Josh. Thank you, Josh. No problem. All right, Stephen. What have you been doing for the past couple weeks since, uh, you know, COVID's been happening? We've had a couple guests, podcasts. What's going on? You know, it's funny because we had a string of not guest episodes. And every time that that happens, like in the beginning of those strings of episodes, I'm always like, oh, I got all these things to talk about. And then it starts to go downhill because I'm like, oh, shit, every week I have to like do more stuff to talk about more stuff. So it's always nice to when when there's a string of guest episodes because I can recharge my uh, my topics. Your backlog. My, my backlog. Yeah, I can I can talk about projects I still have not done. Uh, <clears throat> no, so. And it's actually kind of funny because in this this last few weeks, I've been doing a ton of design work and uh, a whole bunch of testing, which is really fun. Uh, so the, at the first job I had out of college, I did, I was a, a, you know, a testing lackey basically for quite a bit of stuff like FCC testing, CE testing, all of our product validation uh, I did uh, halt and Haas testing. I did all kinds of stuff. <clears throat> I would say a good chunk of my job was testing. And the good thing is I actually really like it. It's a ton of fun. There's, there's something like, I don't know, there's something really gratifying about sitting down, like devising an experiment, taking a bunch of data, and going back to your computer, and then doing statistics on that data to find out, did you... Did you get what you wanted, or are you going to have to do it all over again? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's the all over again part that always gets me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think the all over part, again, is is the part that like people don't even do the testing initially because they're so worried about that. Gotcha. Where, in my opinion, the do it all over again is a very valid solution to mm -hmm. finding all that data like you find all the data and you go okay now i know i gotta go do it again or you take all the data and you're like hey this is great like i don't have to do it all again um so uh, well just as an example one of the things at work that i've been doing is um doing temperature stability testing and anyone who's ever done temperature testing probably size pretty hard when you hear that because nothing happens fast with temperature like ever it's like the slowest testing you could possibly do uh and and we when there's a lot of circuits that we have tested at work for you know over a decade now from just being in the field which is a perfectly valid test right like build the product sell it see how it does kind of thing <laughs> like i mean that's what startups do yeah yeah, it's it's totally valid. You get you get data based off of like what you learn from making a good or a bad product. Just don't do that with airplanes, Boeing. No, no, no. Like, yeah, with with you know startups and 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 obviously as your technology grows, you get better at making better design decisions. But uh, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of temperature stuff that we haven't done at all on our products at work. So, you know. For for non-critical things like temperature drift or frequency drift and oscillators and things like that, um, we've empirically found it, but we haven't actually sat down. So I've been doing that in the past couple of weeks. So I, I built up a a a, a little heat chamber because we don't have like a thermaltronics or a uh, or a gosh, what do they call those? The big hot boxes. Um, there's one brand process one oven, a process oven, but there's one. There's like the cre the Kleenex of process ovens. Um, uh. I can't remember, Ther a Thermaltron or something like that. Uh, regardless, I built my own ghetto version of that with, with some ah, like, foam I got board. The Heatomatic. <laughs> yeah, I like that too. Uh, actually, I named mine the Super Dupes uh, heat testing box or something like that. I can't remember. I wrote it in Sharpie <laughs> on the box and I put, I, I drew a radioactive symbol on the side of it. <laughs> and like the first time my boss saw it he was just like really dude but like i've been doing a bunch of testing and he's like hey this is great you know so uh, a whole bunch of gaff tape and and some um some of that pink foam you can buy from home depot like inch thick stuff oh yes 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 so uh <clears throat> i've been throwing our products in that and basically let them uh, honestly what i've been doing is let them sit overnight i i, I fire them up i put them in like a nominal condition and I leave them run all night long so I know that like their stable temperature inside of a semi-sealed box is 
Like when I get there in the morning, that is their temperature. I take all my readings and then I actually just use a hot air gun and I cook the box and I raise it by a known amount. And then I sit there and I just soak them for like 30 minutes uh, at that, at, at that temperature, take all my readings and then do that all throughout the day. And, and so far it's been really eye opening. There's been a lot of, uh, you know, it's funny. We haven't had like significant, like, Oh my God, we got to change this product because everything is horrible. Uh, in, in reality, what we've been finding is like, wow. Okay. So all of our like gut feel about temperature designs, we've actually been doing really good without testing. So, um, that's been pretty fun. And, and it kind of bleeds over into uh, a project I've been doing personally. I actually have a linear DC uh, power supply that I've been designing for, a, uh, for an amp that I'm making with uh, Josh Rozier, who has been on the podcast a handful of times. He was on, what, three weeks ago, something like that? Yeah, and you say handful, which is actually correct five times. Yeah, <laughs> a full hand, yeah. <laughs> so he and I have been developing an amp, and, and one of the things – uh, the design requirements that we've been putting is that uh, we really, really want it to be bulletproof. Uh, in fact, it's funny because most of the design requirements that we've put on this amp haven't been related to its like playability or tone. It's sound. Yeah, no, they've, they've all been like, we want it to be small, we want it to be light, we want it to be portable, and we want it to last a hell of a long time, and we want it to be bulletproof. and it like, to fall off the things. back of the truck. Exactly. In fact, we put all of those design requirements in our schematic page that we work together such that like as we're working on something, we can look up and be like, oh, yeah, I just added a big transformer and that violates the weight or whatever. So, you know, uh, regardless. So, you know, I've been designing a, a small DC heater power supply for this thing, and it's just a old fashioned Joe Schmo linear power supply. So it's nothing particularly special there. However, we want it to kind of fit all of those requirements. And the big one for me is that I want it to last a long time. Uh, I don't want this to be something that craps out in, I don't know, three years. I'd, it would be great if I could have, like, it, with regular use, a decade worth of it just handling regular use. And uh, <clears throat> which, which, frankly, it should be able to do quite a bit more than that. But, like, my target right now is a decade. And uh, so sort of the, the big challenges with doing something like that are the fact that this is a low-ish voltage, high-ish current supply, which the challenges that come in in with that is when you start trying to spec transformers and, and like hit specific targets, it gets really difficult because the the regulation on smaller transformers, especially off-the-shelf stuff that you can buy, they, so you're not getting custom transformers, a lot of times you're you're trying to find a transformer on like Mauser or Digikey, they don't even include the regulation and your ripple current or or the current that you're pulling out of the transformer doesn't match any of the the currents that are on Mauser like for instance the 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 one that I've got I I think I'm pulling somewhere in the 1.6 amp range out of a 12 volt transformer. Well, Mauser has a 1 amp transformer and a 2 amp transformer, so I'm somewhere in between. That's no problem, but if I don't know what the regulation percentage of the transformer is, I don't know what my DC voltage is going to be. And if I don't know what my DC voltage is going to be, then how can I predict the well, heat how, yeah. or the, the power dissipation stuff? So, how much does your your LDO? How much does how much max voltage does it need to accept? Bingo. Well? Yeah. So I honestly, <laughs> in fact, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold up a couple here. I've got one transformer i've got another transformer right here i've got a third one right here i have a handful of test boards over here that have other transformers i ended up just buying a handful of transformers and and i'm testing them so i can find their regulation find which ones work out uh well for this application and when it comes down to this where you know i'm not buying in high quantity uh a lot of times this is just sort of the best way of doing it is like you just purchase and then validate uh which I, in my opinion, that's a really valid way of, of designing where, you know, you find what's on the, on the shelf and you start weighing things like how much it costs, what the quantity is, what its lifespan is. You weigh those things equally with its performance values. You know, I, I think in so many ways, like we can get caught up in the in all the hefty performance values of, of a component or a design and forget that, like, oh, you actually have to buy it. You know, it actually yeah. has to be available. <laughs> 
gold-plated transformers. So, uh, yeah, so this this particular linear supply is just a 12.6 DC output at 550 milliamps, which ends up being about 7 watts of power. So um, nothing particularly special there, um, but I didn't want to use a like a LM7812 uh, regulator or anything like that because those things have a dropout of a minimum of 2 volts. And if you if you have a minimum of basically if you have greater than two volt uh, dropout on the on a regulator like that, and then you multiply that by the current through it, that thing boils off a ton of heat, <clears throat> and that's absolutely not what I want from this. Um, one specifically because of that uh, that ten year kind of span that I'm looking for this power supply to have. Um, so. I ended up going and searching for LDOs, and when it and another another kind of stipulation with this is I want it to be hand solderable. Right now, I don't want to do surface mount with this. Finding LDOs is a lot harder than you think. Uh, it's it's it well okay. I should say LDOs in the voltage range I'm looking at, and the the characteristics I'm looking at. Like finding a finding an LDO that's intended for the 3.3s or the 2.5s or stuff is a little bit easier. And mm-hmm. and most of the time you're not dealing in half an amp with a current with those things also. You're dealing with a bit less, so you don't have to juggle a lot. When it comes down to trying to do 12.6 volts, which I accomplished by doing a 12 volt with a diode in the ground pin to raise it by 0.6 volts. So when it comes to finding LDOs with like that, Man, I spent a whole Saturday just reading data sheets. And when I say a whole Saturday, I was like six or seven hours of like, I had spreadsheets up of like, this one has this characteristics and this characteristic. And if, you know, this this one claims this much uh, <clears throat> dropout voltage, which would equate to this much heat dissipation. And I don't know, it was, a, it was quite a bit of work. Um, and I ended up coming down to the conclusion of... Um, the LM2940T-12, uh, that seemed to have the best characteristics out of the data sheet that I could find. Uh, the only thing that, I mean, well, not the only. The, the funny thing about it is, in comparing all the data sheets of the LDOs that I found, there was not one data sheet that included the entire package. In other words, every data sheet was missing some critical point of data, and I call it critical, even though it might not be. But like some point of data that was like, man, I wish I could know this. Like some some data sheets would say, this is the, the dropout voltage uh, at 25C and not include any information of what is it at 50? I don't know. What is or, it at 70? You know, graph. like there's, there's, no, there's no chart, there's no nothing. Or they would say like uh, the nominal voltage is 12 or the typical voltage is, is output regulation voltage is 12, but it could be as much as 12.6. Okay, well, what's a histogram? Like, how many out of a 1,000 are going to be at 12.6? I don't know. Like, it could be all over the place. So it's it's really hard to design the front end of a rectifier for off a transformer to be low voltage and hit specific targets if those targets are moving all over the place, you know? Uh, so luckily, this LM2940T seemed to have the tightest... Uh, values on the data sheet, even though it, it like there was still some where I'm like, I just, I'm going to have to test it. And that's what I've been doing is I, I bought a handful of PCBs that I can just build these circuits up with whatever transformer I find. Uh, and then I can, I can just, you know, beat the hell out of it and measure values. Cause I'm taking, I'm taking all kinds of stuff into account here. I'm going to be doing, I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to be doing some temperature uh, cycling on these, uh, on these LDOs. Um, I already have one that I've clocked 55 hours of runtime onto it. Uh, I'm hoping to just let it run for, I don't know, a few weeks. I would love to see it pump out uh, a thousand hours of just, you know, continuous operation. And that should be really easy for it. It's just, I want to see it do that. Um, I ended up buying a little relay circuit that connects to an Arduino. So my plan is to turn uh, turn the device off for 20 seconds and then just hammer it on for 20 seconds and just keep oscillating that for, I don't know, hours on end to simulate somebody turning on this product over and over and over and see 
is there any degradation to the components from in rush over and over and over like that so i'm like for something as simple as a little power supply i really want to test the living snot out of this because i never want this to go bad and really i'm hoping to kind of make a generic power supply that i can use in other products too uh, where it's just like oh we we have tested the living bejesus out of this we know it works just plop it in and it's good so uh i one of the things i was messing with just yesterday actually is that so the the kind of topology i chose for the the power supply it looks just like a regular regulator power supply but i did the um what do they call it bootstrapping where you you basically put a transistor in parallel with the regulator. So the regulator does the work of actually regulating the voltage, but the transistor will share the load handling. Uh, so you don't have to pass all the current through the regulator. You can give a portion of the current to the transistor. And what's nice about that is by varying some resistor values in front, you can actually fine tune it such that each one is sharing half the power. Uh, so they dissipate half as much heat. Or even though they're dissipating the total amount of power between the two, you're spreading the heat further across. And there's a good chance that these are going to be inside of it, a, an enclosed box. So I'd rather spread the heat further as opposed to having like a single point source of two watts of heat, you know? Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I ended up doing that. Uh, I put a tip 42 PNP transistor. That's just a big beefy uh, PNP in a uh, TO220 package put that as a um in a bootstrap configuration but i was thinking about it because off this 12 volt transformer i got after it's rectified and you take into account all the losses i get right about 16.2 volts um i've actually tested this in multiple locations on you know i've taken it to work and i've plugged it in my my basement and i've done a handful of other places to see mains variation uh you know because technically the mains in America are, their tolerance is plus minus, no, I'm sorry, it's, I think it's plus 6%, minus 10% on voltage. So you, if, you, if you're designing something even with an LDO, you still have to take into account that if it's on its low side, is your LDO still going to regulate? And if it's on its high side, are you just going to burn a ton more power? Or smoke. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. So, um, and, and in fact, at... Uh, in my basement here, I have um, 123 volts is what I've been measuring. And I, I read about 0. 0.2 to 0. 0.3 volts more than my outlets at work, which are reading closer to 120, and I get about 16.2 volts. So um, to get that 12.6 volts out, and I have a 16.2 volts in, you know, that that differential there ends up being about two watts of heat that I'm having to just dump. And so I kind of, I kind of came to the conclusion that if I just selectively place some, some resistors in there, I can actually lower the dissipation of the, uh, of both the transistor and the regulator by basically bringing the voltage closer to the, the actual load regulation voltage, and then just burn some extra heat in the, uh, in the resistors. So, even more sharing that two watts. And so I haven't actually built it up yet, but I did some simulations in LT Spice, and I can get about 250 milliwatts of dissipation in both the regulator and the transistor, and then just throw a couple, like a watt and a half at some resistors around. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm using one-watt resistors uh, for this whole thing, and I only need three of them, and I can give each one of them about half a watt, and then give the regulator and the transistor about a quarter of a watt, maybe a little bit more, <clears throat> such that, you know, spread the heat around, everyone's happy, and uh, it'll work out well. So um, hopefully I'll have a PCB running up on that soon. I mean, I already have three of these PCBs running. I just haven't done them with, like, the heat sharing. So right now, in the in the situation I have, the my regulator and my transistor are doing most of the work, and they're dissipating about... 750 milliwatts each which they're fine doing that into ambient temperature they they sit about 80 degrees celsius uh which i would like them to be cooler than that but um it's they're plenty fine doing that right now but in terms of hitting that 10 year mark i wouldn't want them to be 10 years at 80 degrees celsius like that's a good way to 
I don't know. Screw the pooch on that one. Have you thought about, you know, resistors tend to drift, especially with temperature, a lot. Yes, actually, I have. In fact, I was looking at some data sheets earlier today. I was actually picking out some resistors that <clears throat> have a low temperature coefficient and they have a low long term drift based off of temperature. Uh, there were some specific Vichy ones that uh, have that characteristics, and they were like, I don't know, 14 cents or something like that. They were they were pretty cheap for doing power applications. So, yeah, I'm trying to take that into account also. Um, the thing that's nice about resistors is they usually are a lot, uh, they're a lot nicer sitting at uh, higher temperatures than silicon. Silicon gets a little grumpy when it, uh, when it sits at high temperatures for long times, but metal film or wire round resistors are kind of just like, ah, oh, whatever. It's just a little, little warm in here. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's kind of, I've been doing just a boatload of testing and I've got a ton more. If I want to take these circuits to a thousand hours, you know, that's 41 days of testing, testing, you know? So I've been, basically I take the circuit home, I plug it in at home and I monitor it throughout the day. And then I take it to work every day and I plug it in and I'll measure the voltage once or twice throughout the day. So at episode 229, we'll know the results. You know, that'll be fun. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. And the results are probably going to be like, yep, still working, you know? Yeah, probably. <laughs> the, the big mains, the, the main reservoir capacitor that I picked is 1,200 microfarad, and it's a 105-degree C cap, uh, and it has plenty of ripple current uh, capability. And um, I've been monitoring its temperature, and it barely raises temperature at all. Um, I mean, obviously, the core is going to be hotter than the actual like skin of the capacitor yeah. but like it's barely noticeable that it even warms up uh so i don't you know i i measured actually just sort of back calculated its esr and it's like 50 milli ohms it's a pretty nice little cap um so i'm i'm pretty happy with using that the you know the only thing that sucks about these kinds of circuits is that that regulator that lm uh, 2940T, you know, if that ever goes out of, uh, if that ever becomes obsolete, like all of my data becomes obsolete. And really, if, if that cap goes out, I should probably retest also. But yeah, I find this stuff really fun anyway. So I don't just buy a whole reel it. of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then be done with it. Yep. You know, the regulator is not that expensive. It's like a buck or something like that. Um, I did actually on one of my boards. I had one of the one of those regulators go bad, uh, hmm. but I'm I'm not gonna be that guy that's like, oh, I saw one thing go bad, therefore all of these things are bad forever and eternity. You know, I I really I, I don't know. I really dislike it when people do that. Um, great example. My parents bought a pizza from Domino's in like 1987, and it was a bad pizza. And they still to this day think that Domino's is the worst pizza chain ever known to man ever, you know? And I'm like, you guys haven't had a pizza there in 30 something years. Like, how do you it's know it's there, bad? Though. So It's up there though. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a, or down there. Uh, yeah. But regardless, so, so on top of that, I don't know why that IC went bad. So I'm going to chalk that up to I probably screwed something up or maybe I shorted something or... ESD or... Uh, yeah, so... And, and, it, and it died, like, pretty quickly in, uh, in my very first test. And so I was poking around with, with probes and stuff. But this other one, this other board I have has been chugging along for 50-something hours. So I think um, I'll cut him some slack. It's probably fine. Yeah. So the uh, well, I've been doing these past couple of weeks is no electronics actually. Well, a little bit of electronics, twelve volt electronics, I guess. Um, so I've been taking this time to basically get the wagon, the Jeep Wagoneer, all up to snuff back to daily driver status, which is nice. You can have your daily driver just torn apart right now because you can't drive anywhere, right? It's the perfect time. Yeah, perfect time. Um, and so why, what basically my big thing was like fixing leaks on it. That was the big thing. Cause like it, it drives fine. It gets okay. Gas mileage eight for no, it gets 11.8. <laughs> so wait, how many hose clamps are on it now? 
less now. Oh, fewer. Oh, okay. Yeah, fewer hose clamps. Um, yeah, the whole thing was like fixing leaks so that I basically didn't have to top up fluid so much. And it, you know, its nickname was the Valdez because it just like oiled <laughs> like you drive it into because I've because now I have epoxy floor in my garage. Right. Right. So now you can see how much stuff leaks on stuff on the floor. Oh, yeah. And so I'm like, oh, OK, I got to fix that. So the first big thing it's was an oil magnifier. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the first thing was fix the oil leaks in the transmission. The transmission pan was leaking. We placed that. That fixed that. And then the uh, shift linkage. Basically, like, how do you tell the transmission, the automatic transmission, to be from, like, park to drive, right? And in most transmissions, it's actually just a, a shaft that rotates. Well, what happens is that the shaft gets corrosion on it, then it eats the, the, the uh, seal there. And so the seal starts leaking because the seal is uh, below the level of the oil or the transmission fluid that's in there. The great thing is... Um, Chrysler, who developed this transmission, uh, the Torque Flight 727, um, they made it so you could replace that seal without having to drop the transmission out. Because <laughs> they knew. Yeah, they knew. Well, it's actually a really common failure is the seal on like almost any automatic transmission. Like Eventually, the seal fails. Yeah, in my wife's car, uh, the seal is... It hasn't failed, but it's like on its way. I can yeah. see it. <laughs> yeah, because my it, it, would, it starts leaking a little bit, and then when it fails, it's just like you can't keep fluid into the transmission anymore because no. it just just dumps it all. It's done. Um, and so you get this special little tool that basically goes on top of the seal, and then you like turn it, and it like digs into the seal, and then you can yank it out, and then the new one just slips in, and then you use a little socket to tap it in. Perfect. So that all, it was all good. So I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Like I got, I fixed basically like 90% of the fluid drop. I, I fixed with just that. Um, and then I'm like, oh, okay, I'll fix the seals in the transfer case because I could do that without taking it out either. The, that's where the, like the yokes, which connect to the drive shafts. You just pull the yoke off, pull that seal, put a new one on, back together. Only took like an hour to do that, get that all done. And then I noticed that the... Uh, Radiator, or it was leaking radiator fluid, which is unusual. It's never done this before. For some reason, it started doing it. So I started looking where it's at, and I'm like, oh, it's got to be coming from, like, top of the engine. Because you can't really see on the fronts of old engines, especially when you these old engines that have become modernized with, like, air conditioning. <laughs> um, because they basically took these old engines that were never really designed to have accessories and they kludged it and on. then they just kept piling brackets and brackets on brackets on brackets and so you get this like it's like 400 pounds of brackets on front of these engines so you can't really tell what stuff's leaking from so I first did the thermostat housing wasn't that did the water pump wasn't that so I'm like there's no other things on the front that deal with coolant except the timing cover. So on a Jeep Wagoneer, they have an AMC 360 engine, which is a big uh, 5.9 liter V6 in, uh, V8 engine. The timing cover is what the water pump mounts to, and also like the distributor, which does the timing for the engine, and the oil pump. So basically, actually, oil and coolant go through this cover that goes on the front of the engine, and it's made out of aluminum. Well... At about 150,000 miles, the thermal expansion of the aluminum and the thermal expansion of the iron block are different, and that seal eventually starts to fail. The seal takes all the brunt of it moving, right? Yeah, of moving. Uh, yeah, and especially since you have steel, you know, bolts which have a different thermal expansion rate as well. I think they're actually stainless bolts, so they have a different thermal expansion rate of everything else. So yeah, that seal's got to take up that flex. Well, over time, that it will eventually fail. So you got to pull the timing cover off and place, replace that. So I'm like, okay, let's do that. So I took it all apart, pulled it apart. It's not a hard do job to do if you have basic, you know, hand tools. It, plus a torque wrench is like all you need. So I got, I'm getting down in there, pull it all apart. And then, like, basically while you're in there, you should do some maintenance because it's, it's basically you're pulling off to get into the deep reaches of the front of the engine. So you replace everything and refresh everything as you build back out. Um, so I'm like, okay, let's get a new water pump on there. Let's do a new timing chain. That's always a good thing to do. Um, and then refresh all the seals. Be good to go, right? 
So I'm starting to reassemble, and I noticed that the, the first thing was the distributor gear, which is, so you have the camshaft, which moves the valves up and down, is at the end of that snout is a gear that then meshes with another gear. It's basically almost like a worm gear on, uh, no, it's not a worm gear. It's a, it's two helically 90 degree gears. It's kind of weird. Um, I'll just take a picture of it. It's the easiest way to explain it. But the camshaft gear drives a, the distributor around and around and around and around. Well, it's a really hard spot for the oil to get to. And what happens on AMC 360 engines is the, uh, the hardness between those two gears are very important. And if they're not really close one gear starts to get eaten up by the other gear because <laughs> not a lot of oil gets there. Yeah. And that's what happened to mine. Basically starts chewing the, it apart. Yes, chewed itself apart. So I'll take a, I'll have a picture of it. But basically like a, a, a gear with 190,000 miles on it should be smooth. Okay? Not sharp. Mine was sharp and shiny, which means the distributor gear was eating the camshaft gear. If you got you got teeth that are eating each other, then the actual position of them starts to get off, yes. right? Yes, and so your timing starts to drift. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so um, I and so I went online and I bought a new distributor gear and a new camshaft gear from the same manufacturer, so they have probably the same right hardness. They're close enough, so they won't eat each other alive, right? That's that's the hope. I haven't actually, I just drove it to Galveston and back this last weekend. So I'm thinking about this week, pull the distributor and see if it's shiny or not. If it's shiny, then that means, well, time to open it all back up again. Did you notice any any difference in performance? Um, I did with the timing chain. So the old timing chain is probably was the original one for that engine. Is it stretched out? <laughs> and it was so stretched out that... Um, the deflection in the chain that was only six inches long, so between the gears, it's about six inches long, had an inch left and an inch right. <laughs> and so that thing's just wobbling around in yeah, there. Yeah, it was first flapping. May yeah. Hey, may you never know. Maybe it was like flinging oil onto those gears. And it was Could've actually been. doing you a favor. <laughs> um, so I put a new timing set on it, which is a timing chain, new gears in there for the uh, distributor and a camshaft. And then... Putting it all back together, got a new seal on there, torquing everything down, got everything all nice, go to put the harmonic balancer on, and I look at the old harmonic balancer, and the oil, the, it, the oil seal for the front of the engine rides on a machine surface on the harmonic balancer. And so I'm just like, you know, just like, because I was going to put assembly lube on it, as, so I, when I press the harmonic balancer in, it didn't tear the seal up, right? So I'm looping it up, and I'm like, huh. I could feel a groove through my glove, which is not a good thing. Oh, man, <laughs> through a glove. Yeah, through a, through a rubber glove, you could feel a wear mark, basically, in that harmonic balancer. So that harmonic balancer, basically, the old, a old seal had eaten at that, that machine surface. So I ordered a new harmonic balancer. New one came in, put that pupper back on, and... Uh, you have to let all like the seals dry overnight because they require like a uh, a coating on them so everything seals up. Put fluid back in it, fired it right up, bam, ready to go. Nice. But it, that took like that was like three weeks of work because it was you get to one spot and you're like, oh, I got to order this part now, and then it takes you know five six days for that part to show up. You know, we, we we typically measure jobs in beers. That's like a couple of cases, right? There. It was like a couple of cases. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and while I was all doing that, I was also finishing up some of the interior stuff. Like I built a center console, so now it has cup holders. Ooh! Did you three print cup, cup holders? No, I got some nice stainless ones from uh, Amazon. Um, but it's got like a it's got like storage, so you can like put stuff in it, like your sunglasses. It's actually exciting to have a daily driver with cup holders now. Um, what else did I do on the inside? Oh, yeah, the dash. So I, I redid the whole dash instrument panel, put modern gauges in it so it's not the old analog stuff anymore, um, all modern stuff. So I can have – I have, like, a compass now. Oh, man. And, like, external temperature, you know it. You'll never get lost again. Never get lost <laughs> again. 
Um, but actually, the nice thing about it now is I have a, a tachometer now, so I can actually see what the RPM is. And um, also, like, my air-fuel mixture ratio pipes into this now, so, like, it can record all that information. And also, it has I have it set up so it can warn you, like, if you have low oil pressure, it will go, warning, low oil pressure, do something about it. Same thing with, like, over-temperature, stuff like that. What is that engine idle at? Uh, 650. Okay. Actually, I set it for, so it's got three idle speeds, basically. Uh, you have what's called fast idle, which is right when you start it up. Yeah. And you set that to about 1,000. Um, and basically, it stays at that till it gets warm or till the next time you you wide open throttle it, then it trips off. And then you have uh, unloaded and park um, idle. And I have that set to about 750. And then I have what's called loaded uh, idle, which is when you're in drive and air conditioner on. So it's like max load at idle is that those two things happening Oh, in drive and with the foot down on the on the brake. Um, and I had that set to like 650. Basically, you have to set your unloaded idle to be high enough. So when you load it, it's above 600. 650 seems to be where it's happy uh, on under load like that. If you set it too low, it stumbles. Set it too high, it wastes gas. But it makes the air conditioning super cold. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's turning that compressor faster. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the next next step on it is I drove when I drove down the Galveston, it was now I actually know, like, with that new gauge cluster, I actually know how hot it's running. Because before, like, the temperature is like, oh, yeah, it's just like in this, it's between the blue mark and the red mark, right? Yeah. You don't the, really know what that the temperature good zone. is. Yeah. Supposedly. Who knows with a 30-year-old gauge, right? Right. <laughs> um, but this is actually all digital. So it has an analog output, but you can actually like toggle in the menu to see, oh, what's the actual value of that? And if you're driving 60 miles an hour or under, it's perfectly happy engine. Like it never it doesn't overheat. It gets up to 180 degrees Fahrenheit, which is where the thermostat opens up and it stays there. Go 61 miles an hour, and all hell breaks loose. And it just <laughs> overheats like crazy. Really? Yeah. Um, and when I say overheat like crazy, it basically gets up to 230 and just stays there. That's a pretty hefty jump. Yeah. It goes from 180 at 60, and at 60, basically, if you go 65, is what, it'll just go like, it'll slowly climb to 230 and sit there. Hey, is it still between blue and red? Don't know on this to get this gauge doesn't have that. It just has numbers now. Um, so I'm gonna do a new radiator for it. Um, I've I, I've I've rebuilt this radiator twice so far, and it's just all clogged up and and nasty inside of it. Like you open up and it's just like sludge. It's like rusty sludge. Um, so I'm gonna flush the whole engine again, put a new radiator in it, and um, should be good. It never it never ends, right? Never ends. Well, I want to be able to be like my other vehicle, my red Jeep, where you can, I can be in, in stop-and-go traffic, 110 degrees outside, and the AC is frosty, and the engine doesn't overheat. Right now, I don't trust it to do that. I want to make it so I can do that. So That's, that's a requirement in Houston. That is a requirement for Houston. 110 degrees, stop-go traffic, AC, 40 degrees out of the vents. 40 degrees. <laughs> that's chilly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it can do it. It can yeah. blow 40 degrees when it's 100 out. It's just the engine will overheat doing it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pushing really hard, right? Yeah. But hopefully with a new... Um, I'm basically going to put the same radiator I have in my red Jeep into this into this car, so it should be fine. Um, it's just a bigger version of it because it's a bigger engine. But yeah. I, I You know, I, always, uh, I actually always like hearing... Um, you talk about your car adventures uh not because i'm into cars i'm not really but uh but because i i love hearing uh something like you're an electrical engineer by trade you went to school for electrical engineering but yet you still really dig into the mechanical stuff and the nuts and bolts and the yeah and all the all the nut turning um and and that's one thing that like it's certainly not exclusive to engineers but i see that happen quite a bit 
with engineers is like you learn one thing in engineering and it sort of starts to just seep into every part of your life you know everything you, you start treating everything like that too yeah um like doing this whole timing covers thing is is as, as going into it looking at it as an engineer and you know making it better or or um assembling it correctly that that's one thing is i just like when I took it apart, I just took all the bolts out willy nilly because usually that's fine. Um, <laughs> and some old school like mechanic has probably listened to us and just like hit his head on his palm because on AMC 360, pretty much every single bolt that goes into the timing cover is a different length. Oh, God. But the great thing is it's like you can tell it's not too hard. Like, yeah, because like you can just basically um I what I did is once I realized that I'm like oh well you know I've done that before and figured it out later is you order oh, I did I, what I do is I order the bolts largest to smallest and then you just look at all the um I guess mounts and you just pick the one that's farthest away from the block is the longest bolt and just go in that pattern hmm. and it tends to sort itself out the trick is when you start tightening up everything if you if it, you hit the end of the block and the bolt is not snug down onto the... Oh, are they all blind holes? They're all blind holes, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Except, for some reason, one of the bolts on the fuel pump is not blind. Well, like you said, they just kludged a bunch of stuff, right? It just goes into the block, and it's an open hole, and so... And the, the, the factory service manual doesn't say anything about that, and I'm like, that is probably why my fuel pump leaked so much oil, because it's <laughs> open to the oil galley. Yeah, just straight open. Yeah. So oil just slap, slap, uh, you know, sloshes around in that timing cover, and just going onto that bolt and just leaks out. So I'm like, so I put a little bit of a, you know, um, Some molly. pipe sealer Loctite on it, and put it in there so it wouldn't leak. Hmm. So yeah. It's getting there, it's getting there. Sounds like fun, man. Yep. So, so you've been doing a lot of design work and a new EDA tool. Oh, my gosh. Or at least a new version. So I am super, super excited about this. DipTrace 4.0 is finally here. DipTrace tends to release a new version. Well, okay. They, they were on 2.0 for a long time, and then they did 3.0 a uh, year and a half ago. And um, I've been waiting around for 4.0 now because... It's just been a matter of time until they fixed a bunch of like goofy stuff with it. But 4.0 feels so good because they finally like they listened to everyone on the forums and they started like actually fixing some underlying bugs and some really some features that would make people roll their eyes being like, wow, it still doesn't have this. Uh, so, <laughs> but like, <laughs> so the funny thing was with DipTrace. I mean, it's you know everyone knows I love the program. It's great. I I not only is it is it like kind of serendipitous that like I used DipTrace. Like I found one company out there that does what I love to do, and I got a job there because they use DipTrace. You know, uh, it just worked out super nice that way. And um, so the thing about DipTrace that kind of sucked is for a long time they were focusing on doing what I like to call flashy up up grades and updates and things like that uh so they spent a god-awful amount of time adding differential traces to you know the thing and updating the auto router and things that are like people are pulling their hair out being like can we get circles before you give us differential traces you know th <laughs> things like that <laughs> and and of course dip trace had circles forever but um they did not have circles that you could register or align to the center of the circle. Uh, you know, simple things that like, man, when you say, Oh, so you had to do it like on like an arc base. No, like uh, circles end, were circles points. were, um, bounded by a square. So you had to basically think of a circle as like fitting inside of a square. <laughs> so you had uh. to, yeah, you should see Parker's face right now. <laughs> uh. Yeah, no, I, I, Hey, I totally admit it's, there was some really, really bad stuff about DipTrace, uh, but it sounds like they went back and instead of doing all like the flashy bling bling stuff, they were like, we need to go back to our basics and fix some things. So I wrote down a list of, of a handful of things that have changed in 4.0 and uh, feel free to laugh when I say that this is a new thing for any of these. Uh, so now there's finally snapping and aligning 
uh, things. Snapping was always like snap to grid was always a thing, but now you can snap to like the edge of a thing, or if you have text, you can say like left justify to an edge or something like that, which is kind of nice. Uh, and then there's an align tool, so it's kind of like you know Corel Draw or something like that, where you have, hey, I want to say put oh I want that put the top left corner at these coordinates, and it'll do that. Which oh, is okay. super awesome. I'm thinking about aligning is like you can select like a whole bunch of resistors and say align this on the same axis. Uh, Diptrace has actually had that for a while. Uh, oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah, that, that is kind of nice. But but in terms of like saying like click a circle, say like I want you to align the center of this circle to a very particular coordinate, it'll do that now, which is awesome. Um, in fact, what's what's cool is it. It draw dip trace now draws circles as ob rounds, which at first it seems a little weird, but it's it's kind of nice now. So like, if you draw a circle and a circle is still you know fits within a square in in dip trace. So if you you to draw a circle, you draw a square and it puts a circle in it. But if you make it a rectangle, it ends up being a rectangle with rounded edges. So they're those are both the same tool, which is actually kind of convenient um, in some ways. Uh, okay, next thing, uh, circles and arcs actually have a center now, uh, which, okay, so anytime you've learned anything about circles in any mathematical coordinate system, it's a center and a radius, right? Like, mm -hmm. that's how you define a circle. Well, DipTrace never did that. DipTrace, you know, like I said, it's just a circle in a box. But now, like, when you select a circle, you can see the center, but also, if you select an arc of any radius, it'll show you the center plus its radius, which is pretty nice. It'll also show you its arc, too. Uh, so that's really convenient. Um, if, if you draw a line now, it'll show you the length of the line that you drew. And if you draw a line that is not, you know, zero or 90 degrees, it'll show you the DX, DY of the line, too, which is kind of convenient. I like that. Uh Okay, this this one is this one's really really funny, and uh, I never I, I never once I've been using DipTrace for almost a decade now. I never once ran into this problem until like three months ago, and it, it was almost a showstopper. DipTrace now allows you to pick any angle for a pad in the footprint editor. Previously, you could only have ninety and. Uh, zero degrees for your, your pads. So say if you had a pad that was, you know, a, a rectangular shaped pad, it could only be vertical or horizontal. Now you can arbitrarily pick the angle of that pad. So the reason why that came up as a problem is I actually had a customer who was having me design a board for them. And on this board, they had a part where it had, uh, the part was square and it had, pads all around the the edge but one of the pads was on a 45 uh and and in one of the corners it was physically incapable dip trace could not make a 45 pad uh because it also had to be a slot uh the the cutout for it so i couldn't make a 45 in dip trace with the footprint editor which i could totally do now Get this. Here's how I got around that problem. This is so, so ghetto and so goofy. I ended up making two parts for that footprint, two separate footprints for the part. What? Yeah, and I put them on top of each other, and, and then I rotated one by 45 such that it fit. Uh, I even got fancy, and I, and I made the uh, schematic symbol look like one schematic symbol, even though there were two parts connected in it. But it took me half a day to figure out, like, wow, I really, I couldn't do, I couldn't actually make this part in DipTrace. So, go figure. Now we can. Uh, there's one really cool button that has been added now. You can press a single button, and it automatically removes all silk screen from uh, any pads. So it's one thing that's actually really nice about that is say you have a component that's circular where the pads for the component are, you know, uh, on the same radius as the, the outline of the component. You can just draw mm -hmm. a circle for the outline, draw the pads and say remove and it, it pops all the silk screen off of it, which that's kind of nice. Um, the, there is now a progressive search for components. Uh, so if you're in a schematic 
or or actually if you're in any of the modules but say schematic and you want to find i don't know uh a tlo72 op amp you can go to the the part libraries and you can say search for tlo72 well it used to be if if you would search for a component in diptrace and you told it to search across all of its libraries you told it to just do master find anything with this name diptrace would get to like it had a little scroll bar, it would get to 50% and then it would have a seizure and it would go freaking nuts and it would freeze for like a handful of seconds and then it would find the part. And it wasn't like a big ordeal. Like the first time it happened, I was like, oh man, did the, did it crash? And no, but it happened every single time. And so like, in fact, it was funny because um, Roz, Josh Roser, my buddy, was using Diptrace the other day, and he started searching for a part. I was watching him over at Google Hangouts, and he goes, oh, man, it froze. I was like, nah, hang on, dude, and pop up there. It found the part. <laughs> <laughs> so they fixed that, but above and beyond fixing that, you don't have to wait anymore for it to actually search through all of its libraries and then post its results. It progressively searches, and it shows you as soon as it finds parts. So that's nice. Uh, three more quick things. There is now a single button that allows you to uh, export all the manufacturing files in a single zip. So you can just pop it, and there you go. Diptrace used to be you had to do every single file individually one at a time, which is fine because it's usually not that many files, but now you can just set it up. Press one button. Uh, the next thing is teardrops are now available, which that's badass. I really love teardrops. Uh, for people who don't know what teardrops are, uh, basically when a, uh, when a trace hits a pad of any sort, like a, a, a via circular pad or rectangular pad, anything, um, it can make sharp corners there right at where the interface, where it makes that, um, where it meets the pad teardrops makes the, uh, the trace actually fan out into the width or whatever width you choose into that pad. We should post a picture of it because, like, as soon as mm -hmm. you see it, you're like, oh, okay, yeah. It makes all your, your pads look like teardrops, basically. Uh, yep. And kind of one of the nice aspects of that is it increases the strength of the pad. So you have less chance of it ripping off if you ever have to do rework. Uh, so that's really nice. In addition to that, it also does um, rounded and curved corners. Like, if you ever have a T joint where you join two traces together it'll round those edges which oh, that's super nice it's really nice and it'll do it does that automatically too auto it does everything auto because i do that manually in eagle right now yeah uh and then there, there there's one thing one more thing that i think is really 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 awesome even though it seems not not seems it's kind of useless but it's awesome because we talked about it here on the podcast and we were like someone should do this and i stumbled upon it and it was like, holy crap, Diptrace does this now. I don't really care, but Diptrace does it. <laughs> so when when you're creating a new PCB now, uh, it, say, say you've, you're done with your schematic and you're ready to make a fresh PCB, uh, you, you basically, there's a button in Diptrace called Convert to PCB. You just press that, it mm -hmm. opens up the program, and it dumps all your parts in. It used to be that it just would arbitrarily crap all your parts wherever. Now, it actually dumps your parts in the same way that your schematic is drawn. So basically, like, you know. Yeah, yeah, we've, act we've talked about this in the podcast. I think you and I talked about it on text. I don't remember us talking about it ah, on, on okay. Because I know we talked about that as a, as a feature an EDA tool needs to have. Right, yeah, now. no, that's what I was talking about. Yeah, sorry. We talked about it as a feature, but we haven't, but, but I had never seen it. And, and I stumbled upon it the other day because I created a new PCB in Diptrace 4.0, and I was like, man, this is weird. This doesn't look like the normal chaos that it normally does. And then, I, <laughs> and then it dawned on me. I was like, holy crap, it put the parts in the same way the schematic is. And I say it's kind of useless because it just doesn't, like... I don't really care <laughs> that much. No, I want that as a thing. I would l love that. It, it is It is kind of nice for bypass caps, if you ask me. Yes. Like, it puts bypass caps where you put them on the schematic. So it mm -hmm. makes it easier in terms of saying, like, oh, U11 has C56 and C275, you know, for it. I'm really anal about that. When it comes to schematics, if I have a cap on a part like for a bypass, even though they're all like interchangeable, I put those numbers with the one that I was very intentional about. Mm -hmm. It takes extra time, but I feel like no, it's, it reduces that's confusion. what I always do too. It's, yeah, it's proper. It's proper. 
<laughs> so I know that was a mouthful and uh and it's kind of funny i'm just super excited that now like ooh, it's finally like it feels done <laughs> yeah, yeah it feels like i can finally do stuff now so i'm excited about death trace 4.0 go check it out and see if you like it too yeah comment like and subscribe <laughs> hit yeah. that bell yeah. um so you this remind, remind me of when you were talking about building your 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 heater box right uh-huh I'm I'm actually working on a very I wasn't going to mention this but I'm actually working on a very similar project but doing the exact opposite. Oh, a reverse microwave? Oh, I wish. <laughs> Got to cool down that hot hot Domino's pizza, right? That's right. Um no is so like a year and a half ago um my mom bought a ginormous wine chiller like cabinet on Craigslist for super cheap. Okay, and I'm like, there's got to be something wrong with this because these things like sell for like brand new, like eight thousand dollars. Yeah, and it was like, I think it was like five hundred, six hundred bucks. Okay, and so we show up there, and my mom's like, yeah, it's about the size of a refrigerator. This thing is like three refrigerators. Wow. And I'm like, so I had to disassemble the whole thing, lay it on its side, like I had to take the comp- like the compressor unit comes out. And I'll put that in the back of the wagon. I laid the whole thing down over whatever. Get it down to Galveston where they want it. Set it all back up. Well, it took like a whole year for them to like clear the space where it needed to go, right? Of course. Like it was supposed to like they're converting like one of the guest bedrooms into a winery. <laughs> a, sure. Um, I think it's alcohol storage. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we set it all up. Guess what? Doesn't work doesn't work Uh-oh. and so i'm like well it's a year and a half later there's no way you're getting your 600 bucks back from that random dude on craigslist yeah <laughs> and so i pulled the unit out and i remember you talking about a long time ago about a kegerator that you fixed mm-hmm. by getting a little a because i basically like i i took it all apart and i plugged it in and the compressor would get warm and it would blow a little cool air but it wasn't a lot and the the uh, condenser was getting hot too, so I'm like, okay, it actually is moving the refrigerant around. Um, and so I'm like, okay, I need to put gas in this thing. And I remember you were talking about using like a piercing tool that you could add a a basically an opening on the low side, right? Yep, a recharge. So I bought, yeah, so I can recharge it. So I bought one of those, sanded the copper, and I put a little bit of a. Um, sealant on it and I put it down uh, put it all back together put some charge in it right and it started cooling a bit more I'm like okay good you know this this might work a couple days later it's not doing it anymore it's not cooling anymore I'm like ah great and so I got another one of those piercers put it on the high side and then hooked up my gauges my my AC gauges so I can actually see what was going on in there and Put some more, uh, put some more gas in it, and this time I put it with some uh, leak stop in it because I'm like, okay, maybe the compressor is a little worn out, and the seals have gone a bit, and so this will keep it from leaking, leaking the refrigerant back out. Did that, and it would actually get cool again, but it was only making about a two x differential on the low and high side, and it should be making like three to. 5x different depending on the compressor model of course but three it should be making three to five x so like if it has a hundred pounds on on the high side it should be like 20 to 30 pounds on the low side um and it was just like like 50 100 is what it was doing so i'm like okay this is why it's not cooling so basically the compressor on it is shot and so i'm like okay um let's find the like a replacement box like the 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 whole unit like it's got like a whisper cool 2800 i think is what the model is you plug that in that thing's like two and a half thousand dollars <laughs> <laughs> i'm like oh this is why these wine chillers are eight grand right because yeah. just the refrigerant part is is half that or almost half that and so um i'm like okay let's replace the compressor so i looked at the compressor model I can get them on eBay for 300 bucks. I'm like, that's not too bad, but that involves a lot of cutting, 
resoldering of the uh, sweating I guess of the pipes and those are tiny pipes too they're kind of a pain yeah they're like they're quarter inch diameter pipes yeah OD tiny tiny guys I'm like man that's gonna be like a pain in the butt with just like a torch and flux (laughs) because you can't get any flux inside of it because it's gonna vapor yeah it messes things up Um, so I'm like you know what what if I took a hundred dollar window AC unit <laughs> and gutted the inside of that and put it inside of this box and then made my own ducting with pink foam and and hot glue. No, don't tell me you did that. That's what I'm working on right now. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah, because I have one of those That's little so tiny window out. units. I have one of those window, little window units for my entire garage, a almost three car garage. And it can, when it's a hundred degrees outside, it can keep that garage at 75. It's going to, it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to cool it so low that it'll freeze alcohol. <laughs> uh, well, what I did is I put a thermometer in my unit and it blows out 45 degree air. Okay. So I'm like, okay, I know I can get it down to 55 and I'll just use like an STC. Was it 100 STC 1000? It's what we use for doing fermentators for homebrew. Oh, the uh, PID it's one of those controls? temperature regulators. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so I'm going to use one of those to control the temperature. Yeah, because it, because these really inexpensive wall units are all mechanical. Mm-hmm. So I'm basically going to set max, low, max, everything, and just have this SDC just cycle like, on, you know, turn it on. Yeah, nice. Should work. I hope. <laughs> I'll let everyone know That's, if it doesn't no, work. You got to take some. You got to take some in progress yeah. pictures of this. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I I can't wait because it's like. For basically, because it's like it basically be about 150 bucks in the end to fix everything, and um, yeah, we'll see what happens. <laughs> it should. Why won't it work? I have no. It should work, right? Uh, so where's the window unit mounting? Oh, I'll put it inside the old. I'm gonna gut the Whisper Cool box. Of its compressor and it, all its coils and stuff and its fans. And then, because it's almost the same size as the window unit. Got it. And then I'm going to basically gut the window unit. So, like, take all its plastic and outside off, put it inside there, because it's actually smaller. And then build ducting out of pink foam and hot glue. So, like, <laughs> it uses the same exhaust and intake as the Whisper Cool system. You know, when you're done with this, you need to get that expanding foam in a can and just foam the hell out of everything. Foam the outs- in, uh, the inside of it. Oh yeah, yeah. But the, but 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 you got to be classy about it because you foam everything and then you go back with a knife and you make sh- sharp edges. <laughs> <laughs> so it should work. I I don't see any reason why it won't work. Um, it might be a little redneck, but you won't actually tell because it's gonna be inside of another box. Uh, but are, aren't you concerned that it might heat the room a whole lot? No, no. The whisper cool does the same thing. Okay. It heats the room. It works like a refrigerator. It heats the room while cooling the inside. Okay. But I'm saying so like, it has a, it might heat. The so room it has an inside research and then has an outside, basically like the, the, uh, evaporator is inside circulating the air inside the cabinet. Right. And then the, uh, condenser is circulating room air. Yeah. And heating up the room. Yeah. But uh, what I'm saying is like. It might heat the room a lot. Uh, same energy that you're removing. It's actually, it's like double the BTU as well. Because I think the Whisper Cool is actually 2,800 BTU and the window unit's 5,000 BTU. Um, so actually, it'll be, it'll be able to cool down faster <laughs> than the old one. Yeah. So the main thing is, is the sound difference. The Whisper Cool is in its name. It's actually really quiet when it runs. Yeah. $100 window units are, like, super loud. But, again, it's in its own room. No one sleeps in there or anything. Yeah. That Do, do, doesn't matter. <laughs> so. I'll let everyone know how that project... Yeah, keep, keep us posted. That's That That might be one of the best projects that has this been week, on the It should be now. done this weekend, because I think the window unit arrives, like, tomorrow. Nice. And I'll start gutting everything and make sure everything fits. It should. I measured my wall unit, and it should fit inside that box. If not, a grinder with a cutoff wheel can totally make anything fit in anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Now you're getting real redneck. Yeah. The the interesting thing is actually the construction of those really cheap 
units. Like the compressor has, I think it mine's built like this. If I recall right, is the compressor has a shaft that comes. So it's like it's like one motor does everything. Mm-hmm. It drives the compressor and the fan for the evaporator and the fan for the condenser. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be the tricky thing is this Whispercool has like big computer fans for everything. And then the compressor, it's got three different fan systems or three different motor systems. Um, that's going to be the only weird thing is like making that work with the pre That's what I'm thinking. Like pink foam. I can cut it with razor blades, hot glue it all together to make all the ducting should work. You know, um, uh, hot tips from the map. Don't use super glue on pink foam. It don't work. This is just a just. This, this is just dissolve it. It eats it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but one thing that actually does work really well is liquid nails. Uh, li- liquid nails. I mean, you got to wait a long time for it, but uh, it works really well on foam. Hmm. I was just gonna hot glue. The hot glue is plenty fine for it's your application. Pl- yeah. So. Well, with that interesting project i think it's time to wrap up this podcast i think so too yeah so that was the macfab engineering podcast we're your host parker Dolman. and stephen craig later everyone take it easy